0: Welcome to the latest United We Stand podcast, I'm Andy Mitton and I'm in South Kensington, London and I'm with Keith Dewhurst. Keith, as many of you will know, is a contributor for United We Stand. He's, how old are you now, Keith? 84. 84 years old, looking right. fantastic at 84 and he's a former Manchester United correspondent for the Manchester Chronicle newspaper which merged with the Manchester Evening News in 1962. Uh, Keith got that job after Alf Clark, the paper's reporter, was killed in a Munich air crash. And after working in newspaper journalism, Keith went on to become a distinguished playwright. How many of your plays opened at the National Theatre? Six. Six. Six? Six. Wow. And he's written several books, one of the best books you'll ever read on Manchester United, called When You Put On A
1: Red Shirt. A great Jimmy Murphy quote when you put on a red shirt you're the greatest player in the world even when you know you're not and Keith originally is from Oldham
0: and has lived around the world and I'm delighted that he's he's joined us now you were born in Oldham in which year? 1931 1931.
1: what type of family were you from? managerial middle class in the cotton trade my father ran the mill, eventually we ran the mill in Romilly and we moved to live outside Stockport. And before moving to outside Stockport, where did the family live? Chadderton, right. My other grandfather was a on the council in Chadderton, and big in the, He was he was a, he was actually a, a compositor on the Guardian, and he um he uh, he, he was the local registrar, which was a, he actually was a sort of full-time local politician. The liberal. He was a Lloyd George liberal. <clears throat> the Liberal Party sort of fixed him up with this job, so that he could be a full-time local politician. Did you like football when you were a kid? Well, I went to a sort of minor public school where we played rugby, but we were which school Ridal at Colwyn Bay, um, which was famous for rugby, and I mean, and famous in Welsh internationals, Will Fuller and Bloody Williams. Both. Played, I saw Bloody Williams play for the school, actually. Um, Fantastic player, terrific sidestep. Um, so really, we, we played rugby, you know. But it was a, I had a friend? I got into United with a friend who lived in <clears throat> Hale, and his stepfather was a friend of James Gibson, United chairman, and. Uh, He and his brother started to follow United and said to me one day, brandishing this newspaper at me in the school, you should follow United because they've just signed this fantastic manager. And that manager? It was Mark Bosby. Um, And before that, I'd only seen one professional football player, which was at Oldham Athletic, actually, in the war playing Everton, wartime game, a neighbour of my grandfathers took me to see the Lattics. And and my cousin lived, we could walk up from my cousin's house up the back way, past sort of mill lodges and all that, to Boundary Park, and we used to go and watch Lattics reserves of an evening. Um, And when Matt Busby got the United job, he didn't have any previous experience as a manager, he? did not have any previous experience in management, except because he had been in charge of services teams that toured giving exhibition matches.
0: My uncle Charlie played. He played for those teams during the war. Charlie Mitton. He must
1: have done, yeah. yes.
0: Did, did you ever see Charlie play?
1: I saw him play n- numerous times. I must have seen him play at least a dozen times, I would think. What was he like? He was extremely good. He had fantastic feet. He was very upright. And he would do that thing where he would be turned in slightly from the touchline you know at a sort of angle to the touchline I mean an awful lot of good players play at an angle don't they Um, and he'd done his feet would flicker and he'd do a little 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 shoulder swerve and he'd be off you know and he was very quick over the 10 yards and he was a very very good finisher and I think he always mostly took the penalties for United didn't he um, he did. He scored three in one game he against was, Aston Villa in that, 1950. That's right, I remember that. They
0: won seven nil. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: and he told the goalkeeper where each of them was going. Yes,
1: I can believe it. And each time he didn't believe him. Yeah. And can, each time he put it in the I, same spot. I can believe it. I can believe it. He was he was actually very very good. And then I saw him after his Bogotá escapade, and he came back to England. I saw him play uh, for Fulham once at Blackburn. Uh, where his inside forward was Johnny Haynes and the last time I saw him, was right at the end of his career, I saw him play for Mansfield Town at Wigan in a cup Um and of course he still had the feet, he didn't quite have the pace, but he was also he was a bit like David Pegg in that he was the kind of winger who if he'd been a bit more robust would probably have been an inside forward You mentioned Mansfield when Charlie
0: was there, his son also called Charlie, and John, another son, and they were on their way to becoming professional footballers, and John started dating Miss Cole Mansfield, so she was like the prettiest girl of the local The kid, coal mines. The coal I, mines. Love it, I love it, and I love it. That lady is now my Auntie Pat. Very good. <laughs> and, and she moved up to Very Newcastle good. when Charlie went to manage Newcastle United, <laughs> so, and, and is she still glamorous? She is. Excellent. She's still glamorous. Yes. They live in Bristol now because... <laughs> John didn't emulate Charlie's feet as a footballer, but he played a dozen games for Newcastle United. He played for Leicester City. He was a first-class wicket-keeper for Leicestershire. He played for Coventry, Exeter City, and he settled in that part of the world. And He lives in, in Bristol. David Pleat came up to me couple of years ago because one of your contemporaries David Meek yes. told David Pleat that, see that guy over there that's Andy Mitten it's, it's Charlie's uh, great nephew and David said Charlie no no I only know John right, and David right, came right, to see me right. and said I played with your uncle at Exeter City and we had a great team in 69, I think it was. And we drew Manchester United in the cup. They did. They did. And John said, I know how to beat this team. And everybody trusted John because of who his dad was, because he was from Manchester. And he got beat 3-0. <laughs> and George Best you know, was a different level to, to, yes. to, to, to any, yes. anybody. Yeah.
1: Yes.
0: So how did you become a journalist? And how did you become a football journalist? Well,
1: I wanted to be a writer. Uh, and I had to earn a living, you know. And, you uh, went to Cambridge? I went to Cambridge. Yeah. Um, How did you get in
0: Cambridge for a, a Northern boy? Who's, was well, it difficult or just you judged on your intelligence? I or? got a
1: scholarship mm. to Peterhouse. Mm. Um, I, the, at that time, you know, the, we had two was actual sort of working class people, students in the college. One of them, it was a very interesting man, called John Pearson, who was who, who taught like that, but because he, he got a commission in the National Service, which actually was a cockney, and he later wrote the the biography of the Crays, the, Is it called, a profession of violence, right. and he worked for the Sunday Times and wrote the Crays bio, biography, because he'd known them as a kid, you know. And um, if you know someone as a kid, you know, you know everything about them. You do. You, you really do know you them. You do, yes. Yeah, so I, uh, well, actually, my father had a friend who claimed that on his recommendation you could get a job with the London Evening Standard. And I, um, I've i written little bits and pieces for myself, and I've written a little bit of piece about Jimmy Delaney, who played outside for United, and uh, Matt's first signing. And I sent it to the editor of the Evening Standard. Saying, uh, I'm told that if this comes, you know, no, Mr. So and so has told me to write this to you. And he said, Come to London. And I went to London. It was the famous John Juno. Um, and uh, he said, I like this. And if you write any more, I can't give you a job, but if you write any more, I'll publish, I'll, I'll, I'll print them. Uh, and the first thing I ever had printed for money was actually a piece in the Evening Standard about Tom Finney. And as I was leaving, just in the doorway, he said, By the way, I said, What well, he said, who's this Mr. So and so? He never heard of this bloke at all. Really? And, uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, fantastic, <laughs> yeah. And, and he then became the editor of the Sunday Express. And when he was the editor of the Sunday Express, he, he gave me a match to report on every week for a whole season. Um. And as a result, I had a fistful of cuttings. I had like 20 cuttings or whatever it was. And I sent these to the editor of the Evening Chronicle. And they had a graduate trainee scheme. Although well, there was only me and one other graduate on the entire page, or the entire building as far as I could see. Um, and they took me on and uh, I was in the newsroom. I went to Wigan, trained in Wigan. and I was in the newsroom and then I moved to the sports desk, which was, they were the most fantastic people. The most fantastic lot of people I ever worked with. And Why? I worked with two other great lots, one on Zed Cars and one at the National Theatre, but well, been an acting troupe before the National Theatre. But these people were fantastic people. Why? Partly because, you know, they'd all been in the war. And, you know, if you read, I was reading, I just read yesterday a review of a book about austerity Britain. How awful Britain was after the war but of course actually it misses out the most important thing. The war was over so people were very happy and people had seen these awful things and knew the value of common decency and they were like that. The sports editor was Jack Smith, God rest his soul, he was the most fantastic person and he had this wonderful staff um, And one of them was the Manchester United
0: correspondent, Alf Clark.
1: Alf Clark. What was
0: Alf like?
1: Alf was wonderfully ungrammatical, really. It wasn't really... It was those things that people wrote, things like, Frank Swift jumped literally from nowhere. Um, (laughs) You know, it, it was... Purple prose, you know, he shook the, his, his volley, shook the rigging, and all that stuff. You know, it was on that earlier cricket reporting when they described a, you know, a four, as he he dispatched the crimson rambler to the boundary. You know, <laughs> a wonderful sort of, oh no. unbelievable <laughs> lurid prose, because because people hadn't seen the matches, so they needed this. There was a man who wrote for the Sunday Express, whom I met once, called Alan Hobie, who wrote the most extraordinary. Purple prose, even, even in the 50s, you know. Um, Desmond, they were all... They were all was it
0: accurate, or was it like the famous war reporter who used to sit outside his country pub in, in,
1: in, in, well, in, in, in Surrey, writing about the Crimean War? That's a very... Yes, that's a very good question. Was it accurate? Well, it was emotionally accurate, you know. Yeah. Um, I think actually it's quite as there was a whole group of journalists in the north of England most of whom were lost in the crash at Munich who were actually very interesting individual knowledgeable writers you know the guy Eric Thompson that wrote for the Daily Mail, he used to illustrate his batch report with little sketches um And the guy that wrote for the Guardian, Old International, was a fantastic writer, he was a very good writer. Why did they have these pen names
0: like Old International? Why did they not use the normal names?
1: Well, I mean, the Guardian didn't have bylines, and very few bylines, did they? The famous, you know, the Guardian's famous for misprints. There's the famous misprint, a great misprint, it was the, the reader's letter about the First World War, protesting about the First World War. and and it was yours faithfully, H.D. Lawrence, of course it was D.H. Lawrence, but but when I I wrote a column for the Guardian later for the Arts page and you used to get the most horrendous mishearings of other copy takers. You don't get as much of that now, it's all computerised do you actually?
0: You don't get Copy takers, the last time I I used a copy taker was in 2010 when there was no Wi-Fi at Ibrox.
1: At Ibrox? And, yeah, surprisingly,
0: because the Rangers are a big club, and yes, they're a modern yes, club. Yes. And uh, I rang my copy through and, gosh, when I first started as a journalist, I used to ring copy yes, through and you yes, would
1: build up a rapport with yes, the copy taker. That's right. And, and there were these wonderful, cynical men who world. treated you with disdain. Yes. Is <laughs> some this, some <laughs> fool boy in a phone booth and mouths blotting, you no. Are you nearly finished? <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Very good. February
0: 1958, what were your movements around the time that Manchester United Um, played the
1: game in Belgrade in the the Partizan Stadium? On the day we were in the office and uh, we'd seen the previous game, you know. The Partizan Belgrade outside left was a guy called Kostic.
0: The Red Star, Yeah,
1: yeah. Reds. Yeah. Partizan. A lot was a lot. They were. played
0: at Partizan's ground. Yes, because it had floodlights. Yes. and Reds the Red Stars
1: didn't. He scored a fantastic goal. Yeah. He chipped Harry Gregg from a long way out. But Harry Gregg was—I mean—he was a heart-in-your-mouth goalkeeper, really. You know, if the truth were told. Um, and we were in. We'd, so we'd seen that game, and when we were in the office, and. Uh, we were subbing, we were doing the, pi- the Saturday ping. We were working on the Saturday ping. Uh, and somebody telephoned from London and said that they'd heard that the plane had crashed. Alf Clark phoned early to say they were delayed. And, of course, Alf was the one. The third time they took off. They, were, they did the head count in the plane and there was one missing and it was Alf because he'd made the phone call. And then he appeared to ironic cheers, um, and sat there, and, uh, and then we sort of realised everybody was dead, you know, and we did this sort of, they did a, we did a late, late edition, and, and uh, Wolf McGuinness appeared with a friend of his, who was a driver from another newspaper, i am never quite clear how that happened. When there are catastrophes, things happen that you know, they're never explained, no. Uh, Wilf appeared, who was injured, didn't go because he was injured. And he was sort of the reserve left half at that time. And he sat at a a table in the office for a couple of hours, and we gave him a cup of tea and all that. And um, it was just very sad. And the next day we wrote about it, and then I had to go on a tour
0: so Wilf came to the office
1: because you were the hub of news that's why yes. right, the news was coming in yes, yes. Um, and the next day you went the, the next day we all wrote I wrote a piece about it um, I, um, and I think the day after that uh, I had to because I had this year annual commitment where I went around the northern racing stables with Claude Harrison who was the racing writer and Claude wrote about the uh, horses and I wrote about the people um, so we went to Middleham and and Malham um, and uh, we, we, we did our we were away for about 3 or 4 days to do this horse thing and, the, and uh, when we came back most of the funerals and things had been held by the time we came back um, Alf of course had this lady friend whom Arthur the columnist, referred to as the Black Widow and that the, the Al's funeral of the Black Widow got a bit hysterical and tried to reach his coffin and had to be restrained by Arthur Arthur, was the type, Arthur and Jack Smith were the type of men to whom this sort of thing happened you know they were, they were sort of pacifying and restraining influences and occasionally, and Arthur was always used by Matt for sort of the spin doctrine you know, because if you told Arthur it must be true if Arthur said it, it must be true, you know. And some things that they wanted to keep quiet, they would tell Arthur in confidence. And then that when Harold Hardman ran away, you know, the week before the cup farm in 1963, when Harold Hardman lost his bottle and ran away. He came, well, he came to a hotel very near from where we're sitting now. So the United chairman lost his bottle. He lost his bottle, he ran away. And, and Ran away from who? Louis Edwards I think and, and their schemes to take over the club right. what seemed to him to be serious problems and he stayed in a hotel in Earl's Court which is very near where we are now and he, he stood on the terraces and watched Chelsea and he played at Samford Bridge in the 1908 Olympics he'd been outside left where he won a gold medal in, in, so, so in the Olympics that would be you'd get that would that, would well, that Matt, told Ar- Matt told Arthur so that it wouldn't appear in the newspaper If you see what I mean. Right. So Arthur would then knock it it back and say it's not true, don't write it. Or he'd have a sort of explanation saying, no, he's a no-man and he needs to be left alone. People did that, you know. I was once given a lift back from Blackburn by a Catholic priest who told me all about the problems they were having with various United players and lady friends and everything. (laughs) I went to Jack Smith and he said, oh yes, but of course you didn't run it, you warned the player. And I've Dennis what, what and Violet. I about, oh, Dennis's um, mm. wife Helen was in United we stand. Last oh, that year. was a wonderful piece. Though. I, I yeah. thought that was. It he was, was a fantastic was, person. Yeah. I liked Dennis a lot. We it had to take very, a few little bits out. <laughs> yes, I can well believe it. Yes. Um,
0: <laughs> I'm still glad that we did it.
1: Yes. yes. Yes.
0: But you can see that some stuff doesn't get through, and you know. It's what I suppose is in the public interest and
1: and what isn't. Yes. Well, the public interest then, what? in the 1950s, was considered to be somewhat narrower than what the public interest is considered today. So one, one
0: thing that I liked about your book is there's a lot of really poor Manchester United books, and there's some good ones, but you looked at the colour around the club. It wasn't factual. It wasn't United won 4 2 on this day and the crowd was X or Y. You talked about directors having mistresses in the Norbreck Hydro Hotel before a big game. This, this, it's the bigger picture.
1: No, yeah, well, no it wasn't a director. It was a friend of Arthur this okay. It was a friend of Arthur Wormsley. So it was a friend of a
0: journalist. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes, yes.
1: I, I, I do apologise to all directors of <laughs> football clubs. And I, I wasn't being biased because I'm a journalist. No, or... but you tried to, uh, I tried in the book to... Uh, to write it as though it was a, it deserves to be written about, as though it is serious history, and and it should therefore be written. I did when I have not talked about this, I'll talk about it now when I wrote the book, Sunday but that must be some objected violence to things that I've written in the book. Yeah. And a lot of people <clears throat> tried to pers- persuade me to use this as a news story.
0: Yeah.
1: Because they said it would have sold a lot there would have been yeah. But uh, old men can't undignify themselves by arguing in public like that, can they really? Um, so I didn't, but, you know.
0: Um. It's how much of the truth goes in there. If you, if you look at any autobiography, they're not entirely truthful. No. And some of the footballer ones, like 20% truthful. I'm not saying that there's stuff in there which is factually incorrect. It's what they leave out.
1: Yes, yes. So I've yes. done books.
0: Yes. Yeah, I've worked with people where you know that stuff has gone on in the private life. You just keep it out. Yes. Yeah. Imagine if someone did it where everything was in there. I suppose when Tony Cascarino did his book in a decade or so ago, that was it was all in there. Yeah. But I suppose he wouldn't have got the deal to publish a book because he wasn't a particularly famous player.
1: No. If
0: it all wasn't in there, no. which made it a great book. But I, th- I think. Uh... Remember Rio Ferdinand I mean, saying to me I'll do a proper one when I'm finished
1: Yes he and hasn't then, has he
0: No he hasn't And I know a couple of the other lads have said
1: so. He hasn't, um, hasn't, um, hasn't said about why He <clears throat> took up too deep a position As his legs went for too long But he was a great player for He was hand. in his day He was a fantastic player yes He was He was. I saw him
0: recently at, um, at a game And told him that he, his podcast was the second most listened to him. he was quite proud of that well I think
1: he was a very as far as I can tell he was an extremely intelligent perceptive right. man actually right. so, oh, um, council estate in South London yes he's, I, I, he's but, a bright but boy a lot of the thing, other things he's done in outside football have been very interesting yeah. I, mean. I think he's read certain
0: situations wrong but on balance he's yeah. a bright guy was yeah. yeah. a great player yes really was. great player yes and how did you find out you were getting the, the, the job
1: to cover Manchester United. What happened then? Um, well, I came back from the uh, from the racing stables and uh, Jack Smith said, we'll go and see the editor. And we went to see the editor. And the, we sat down in front of the editor and the editor said, would you like our job? Mr Smith has every confidence in you. So, uh, and I said yes. Well, it's a dream come true, isn't it? Did you get, get a pay rise? Right? Can you imagine? I did actually. Yes. You, went, you covered it then every United game. I covered it for that, the remainder of that season and the next season, and then I left to write for the television. I did,
0: you know. So you did a, a season and, a, and I, a
1: third. I did a season and a third, and I did the World Cup too, 1950, yeah. in 1958. In Sweden. In Sweden. L.A. Hellae. Wales. Wales. See, and I was, somebody I was hearing, you know, Gorincha, people say. It. I saw it. When when Cryfe died, people did lists of who they thought were the greatest players. Have you read Gorincha's
0: autobiography?
1: I have. Oh, yeah, I've read it. i have read the yeah. book about him, yeah. But I only saw him twice, Gorincha. Each time he played against a fullback from the English First Division and he didn't get any change out of them whatsoever.
0: Didn't he lose his virginity? I don't born?
1: actually believe he was the. He lost his virginity when he was
0: 12 or something. Well, that would be was to, the, to a goat or something Brazil, Brazil, yeah. the favela, yes. And how did you cover games? Did you travel to away games on the team coach? Yes, yes. So the journalists
1: would be at the front, the players at the back? No, we were all mixed up. Right? So yes. You, you yes. were friends with them? Well, well with Jack Crompton and Debbie Meek. Billy Fox and me, and occasionally Albert Scanlon, yeah. were, we played cards together, and Billy Fawkes used go, got so in, s- Albert Scanlon couldn't resist fiddling the scores, it can't. So it. Billy, 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 <laughs> Billy Fox used to get totally incensed at Albert, but <laughs> so, no, no, we, we, we were all the same age, Yeah. so yeah. I was 26 or... We were just, it was... You were from a different class to them I mean if you were from a middle class background I've w- yes.
0: had to work in class Well but...
1: yes Was yes. that an issue because
0: Gary Bailey when he joined United many years later he, he said I'm oh, a middle class privately educated South African yeah. thrown into this yeah. pit of lions where I was savaged for reading a newspaper which didn't have a set of breasts on page three
1: Yes well, I suppose the fact is, <clears throat> yes, I guess I guess they were a bit sort of wary, but then they realised that I was sort of from the north like them, and I was perfectly amiable. and um, yeah. You were trusted by them? We were just, yeah, we were yeah. just friends, yeah. you know. And you saw them socially? And I, I did a bit, yes. Yeah. Who were yes. you friends with? Well, I used to ghost for Bobby Charlton. I ghosted yeah. his articles, so I, was, I used to see Bobby a bit. I, I was closest. David and I were both in the in a way the most friend our best friend was Bill Fowkes, in a way. Yeah. Um, and I also used to see occasionally a bit later a fullback called Tommy Heron. I used to yeah. see him a bit outside from um but then you did see them a lot, I mean, you saw them got a lot. You
0: mentioned 58 World Cup in Wales, and Jimmy Murphy.
1: Jimmy Murphy was managing Wales.
0: Um, and in your book, there's, there's yeah. a reference towards Jimmy Murphy from yourself in your book. Do you, you have a good relationship with him? Do you feel that his, his place in history has been perhaps
1: underplayed? Um, <clears throat> well, I suppose part of the reason... I wrote the book. It was I think he was underrated. I don't think Matt meant to underrate him. I think it just happened as the world went on, and, and Jim was not as Matt was a master of the publicity. Jim, on the whole, profoundly distrusted all journalism. Uh, although he had a great, he had actually very close friends who were journalists, of course contradiction it,
0: isn't yes. it,
1: he, he doesn't trust you <laughs> yes. but he chooses to be friends with you yes um, and he conf- confided in me I don't know I, so it, it was not just... like journalists and yet he confides in you yes but I, he sort of picked on me and when we were the first game we went away was a, the famous game at West Bromwich and we stayed in a hotel at Dreutung and he said, Will you sit up and have a drink? And after that, he, he sort of picked on me somebody he could talk to. Um,
0: An outlet for him, someone to yes. run ideas
1: by, a confidant. Yes. yes, and we were friends then for, I we were really good friends then for a long time. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh. Why was he
1: Yin to Samat Yang? Well, that's a very, well, I mean, it's like... It's like Clough and Taylor, except it's at a sort of higher level. I mean, Jimmy said, didn't he, Matt Busby had gone into politics, Henry Kissinger wouldn't have lasted 20 minutes. Under Matt was this... Well, Matt was a genuinely great man, wasn't he? He was this extraordinary person. Why? What made him great? He could make things happen the way he wanted them to. And he—he he was the most, by far, you know. And I've known all kinds of people in the show business and all kind of actors. And I was very friendly, a good friend. We used to see James Mason, for instance. And we used to go out together. Um, but that was by far the most charismatic person. Ever. He was extraordinary charismatic. You wanted to please him. Because Charlie was very strange, and it was, but it was sort of. Charlie once told me tactically he wasn't
0: as astute, but maybe that would be Charlie just...
1: No, no, I'm sure that... No, I don't think he was. He knew what the wonderful football was. He could deal with the footballers. He could handle them, get the best out of them, Mm -hmm. offer them the dream. Jimmy was very tactically, very astute, and a very wonderful judge, and could articulate it. No, I think Mark did make tactical errors and again. I mean, that, when they played Real Madrid in the first time they played them I in mean, 1958, I suppose, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, and he tried to mark this with one man in one half of the field and another man in another. I mean, a recipe for complete chaos, I think, as, as it turned out. And, you know, and he, was, he never, it took him a long time, Mark, to get the notion that you needed to be very cautious in a way legs in Europe. But Jimmy was very... I mean, Jimmy's m- managership of the Welsh team in Wales was a was a tactical masterpiece, really. I mean, it was a defensive masterpiece. The, the only one I've seen like it was when Marino at Inter Milan beat Barcelona. I thought that was a tactical, tactical masterpiece, really. And working out the division between the two lines of four so that the, the Messi was like in a net somewhere he couldn't get out of this he'd thrown a net over him and he couldn't get out of it you know? I was at the game but it was very clever and, and he, he worked the crowd against yes the crowd became as
0: infuriated yes. as, as the players yes you mentioned it was Miridia. brilliant yeah. brilliant could you see him being
1: Manchester United manager Miridia? well the fact is that the way the world is going you can see anybody as a Manchester United manager whether he's the money the the, the Maybe he will be the manager to rescue them from a very bad situation. How bad is the situation? I think it's pretty bad. I would say, I think in a way, I was really, I watched the game at Tottenham only on the the television. You you know, it's like, you see, I mean, Tottenham weren't commanding like a team that's going to win the championship. They weren't. They had a spell in the second half. They had a spell. They they weren't, I was disappointed with them. And you think, you think if Timothy, you know, that that really good black lad from Holland, hadn't been injured. It could have been a draw if he hadn't gone off, because he did save them about three times. But when he went off, you realise it. Because I just don't think the system, there's too many players who aren't very good. And I don't think, I I I do think the situation is pretty desperate. actually. Why? You don't think the players are good enough? Or most of the players are not I think a enough. lot of the players aren't good enough. Yeah. Not for the level. No, I think a, most of them are actually very skillful players. You see, and when they're in the first 20 minutes and they yeah. all the possession, you saw a lot of very good, clever first, very good, neat control. But, but I don't think they're good enough to, to play at that top three, four, five teams in Europe level. Which United should be. Which at. they should be On they expect to be out. United were not at that level after
0: Munich when you were covering them. And within 18 months of the crash, crowds had dropped away a long yeah,
1: It took a long time. It took, well, it took really, didn't it? Bernard Joy of the Evening Standard, Bernard Joy played centre-half for Arsenal as an amateur. when Arsenal were also with the world with the crowd Europe's top club team, I suppose. He wrote an article in the Evening Standard saying it would take five years for United to recover, which it did, because they won the Cup in 1963. With Mr Crerand. With Mr Mr. Crerand, Crerand. Mm -hmm. seeming to be the only man at Wembley in possession of the ball, basically speaking. And of course, Mr Law was playing. Um, um, What was Paddy like as a player? He was extremely good. I mean, he was a bit slow, but he was a very powerful ball winner. And it was his, his the range of his passing and his reading of the game was fantastic. I mean, a lot of people at that who couldn't were slow like he was slow. Maybe don't it difficult to know how they would go into today's game, but he was so clever. I think he bounced people be because other people can run round you. You know, I mean, Anthony Marshall and what's his name, Rashford could run round Rooney if he chose to allow them to do so. You know, he could just deliver the ball and they could do the running. Um, so you had this
0: dream job. You're travelling home and away with United. You'd, you'd go to an away game the night before, stay in a hotel? It, depending on how far away it was, yeah. yes. You know. Have a drink, maybe... Well, I'd report. sit up with Jimmy talking most and, of the time. And that, when would you then file your report? How well, would you, well, on the, a copy taker, on a telephone. They were on a
1: copy taker, on an open line, on yeah. the telephone. The match report. Yeah. And then you'd use, you'd have time to do another piece when you got back on Monday. Yeah. You know. Um, so if it was a dream job, why did you give it up? What I, I wanted to be a writer. You wanted to be a writer. Yeah. And but, but all the time, it, because it, 1956 was the year that independent television start, started in Manchester. Yeah. Granada Television started. Of yeah. it was all. Lighter. Was Granada called Granada because the guy who started it, his favourite city was Granada in Spain? Well, all the cinema chain was called Granada, yeah. wasn't it? Granada. They yeah. had a cinema chain before that. Um, before
0: that, yeah. Yes, they were,
1: they were in the south of England with the cinema chain. not right. um, where
0: it comes
1: from? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe it yeah. was. Yeah. Um, and the cinemas were all this kind of exotic Art Deco cinemas, yeah. you know. David Fowright, was he involved? Well, that was later. That was okay. that, that was he was like second generation. Right. Um, so first
0: generation.
1: First generation was the, the, the sort the, of cinema that Well, I went to press conferences. You know, Sydney Bernstein himself at the beginning took the press conference, and and the the, the the sidekick with the publicity, head of publicity was a guy called Jim Phoenix, and Jim Phoenix is boy, youth assistant, was, was a young fellow called Jack Rosenthal, who also subsequently became a writer, as people might know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And Jack, of course, did, he was an amateur sculptor, Jack, and he, he sculpted Bobby Charlton, among others.
0: At whose request? I'm not,
1: I don't know, Jack's probably, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. Did you
0: regret giving the United a job up, or had you just enjoyed it and felt it was time to move on?
1: No, I didn't regret it because I, I wanted to be all right. I wanted to go on and do this sort of thing, do what we wanted to do. And uh, I, I went to living in the Greek islands for I don't know, quite a long time. How long? Oh, About six months or six months. To so write? So yeah. Which island? Mykonos. Well, Rhodes and Mykonos. I mean, it wasn't like it is today, it was very primitive, but it was fantastic. Well Rhodes today is full of Brits on the piss, Yes, Mykonos is is full of of gay, it's a very fashionable gay place. That's right. It wasn't like that at all. And, you know, being in the theatre, dozens of my best friends are homosexuals, of course.
0: I went there with
1: my wife a few years ago and I was clutching her hands and she said don't flatter yourself. It wasn't that at all, I could tell you. I mean it was, we were there in the winter, it was a bad weather, it was cut off, the boats couldn't get in, you know. With the windmills. Supplies were running low, it was very, uh, it was, and then I was in Athens for a time and I came back. That's
0: very different to Aston
1: Villa away isn't it? Aston Villa, yes.
0: Or, or Northern England to Mykonos, did you, yes. did you just choose that you wanted to go out of the way and to write and to concentrate? Yes,
1: and uh, I'd always I wanted to be a writer and to see the world. And have you seen the world? Not, 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 not well, a bit of it. You no. lived in Catalonia? I lived in, I lived in Italy and I lived in France. Um, Catalan-French? Yeah. And Australia? And Australia for quite long too, periods of time. Um, you been to the United States? Yeah. Do, do you know John Salthouse and I my friend John Salthouse and I were, were, were paid for to go to America once um, <clears throat> to, do, to, to, to to research writing a film about an English player who went to play in the American League and we, we followed the Tulsa Roughnecks and uh, uh, up the, the Tulsa Roughnecks the first game they played the New York Cosmos and we I, we blagged our way into the dressing room I said I was writing for the Guardian which was kind of true up to a point and uh, <clears throat> we got in the dressing room and there was the Kaiser with the with Bogace, with a man called Bogachevich, who was a Yugoslav inside forward, and we said to the Kaiser, "What did you, think? I'm so so from the Guardian, you know, what did you think about the game?" To which he said, "The kick and rush, the kick and rush." And then, then we went we went to L.A. to see them play the L.A. Aztecs, who were managed by Renus Michaels. Wow! And there was one period of the game where John and I was was standing on the touchline. Talking to, next to Rina Smith. The, man who, who, the man who invented total football. The man who invented total football, who was wearing a most beautiful sports jacket and flannels, Be- very nice. Yeah. And he was shouting instructions at the, that Dutch, that fullback called Sue by. I don't remember him, he was playing right in front of it. And we were talking sort of to Rina Smith, saying, What do you want him to do? He said, You want him to push up. The you know. <laughs> same old story, isn't it? It's all also- sad. I've got a player from Manchester at the moment. Really? I,
0: I've called Mark Howard, who
1: is at United. Does, is it? Is Charlie Cook still involved with them? I've no idea. And I'm not did you know Charlie Cook? I knew. I knew his. Did name you know what's know. his name? Charlie Mitchell. Yeah. No. Charlie Mitchell was the manager of Tulsa X, who played for Glasgow. He played for Glasgow Rangers. Well, he'd not been quite good enough to play for Rangers. <coughs> forget, we met Charlie Cook in Memphis, and Charlie Cook knew a man in the theatre famous lighting designer in the theatre called Andy Phillips who was the great lighting designer at the Royal Court and Andy, Andy said if you see Charlie Cook ask him if he's still holding on to the ball too long and we, said to, we went out for an evening with Charlie Cook and I said to Charlie Cook and Andy Phillips sends you his best regards <laughs> said Charlie Cook and he wants to know, if you're still holding on to the ball too long, to which Charlie replied, you can tell him to stick it, fully inflate it, up his ass." And Charlie Cook had been in the same class at school as my theatre colleague, who'd worked with Andy many times, Bill Bryden who was a the theatre director. Bill Bryden had been the captain of the school football team, and the referee had called him over after, some outrage, Charlie committed. The referee had said, I want, I want you to discipline your man, to which Bill said, you, you're the referee, you discipline him. We're near the end of the podcast.
0: What's the best game of football
1: you've ever seen? Oh, my, oh I think in a way in a way the best was when United beat Benfica the first time in the European Cup yeah. in a way because that was when you knew they were wonderful away no yeah. the, no, the one at home oh, yeah. when Nobby Starr just marked UCB out of the game yeah. you, you knew they were wonderful then yeah. um, and I think that was actually when they beat Benfica that, uh, the away game yeah. that was the high not. I don't think winning the World Cup was the high water I, I think that was the real high watermark LB, of British football. Yeah,
0: hammering yes. away. But it was Danny
1: Slough that did it. You know? Yeah. He was the guy in the middle of the field. He played a fantastic game. He was the player. You know? Who's the best He's still player? the king. Who's, is he the best player you've ever seen? Well, it depends. Do you, is the best player you've ever seen, is it the one who has the most skill in the position? Or is, the spe- or is it the one who runs the game? It, if, it, if it's the one that runs the game it's Eustafano, isn't it? Mm. I thought he was fantastic. I saw him like three times. I thought he was It's gonna be a Paul's, Paul Skulls was actually vastly underrated and truly wonderful. And if, if Gerard Lampard hadn't been so selfish, he, he his England career would have been different. Skulls wasn't underrated outside of England.
0: I've often interviewed
1: people I can well believe it and they yeah. just
0: pick him out and yes. I find that pe- yes. people tend to be harder on their own
1: yes, he was fantastic damnation of their own you can yes, see, and, and it's hard, <laughs> he was wonderful he was really wonderful Tom Finney was of course anyway I suppose Tom Finney was the best English player so <coughs> there's going to be a book coming out about Distefano by uh, Ian
0: Hawkey, is a very good writer. Yes, he is. Charlie nearly had a chance to go to He did. Madrid. They wanted him to go, they didn't they? Him.
1: And that Hector yeah. Real. Did you, yeah. did you know about Hector Real?
0: Yeah, well, um, a Madrid lawyer called Santiago Bernabeu flew to Bogotá and offered a contract for Distefano, Hector Real and, and Charlie Mitten. But um, Charlie's wife... Was homesick and wanted to go back to Manchester. It's
1: unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, they
0: offered him a lot of money as well. He went back, he didn't have a club. He could have gone to Real Madrid. Can you believe it? Oh,
1: could have won all of them. European I can clubs. believe it. I can believe it. <clears throat> I mean, I mean, he, he, he was a money. different type of winger from Hento, but he was just as effective, actually.
0: Hento was Franco's favourite. Yeah. I don't think Charlie would have been. He liked greyhounds and gambling. And... <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, Hento was a, was a powerful runner. Yeah. Yes. yes. He was the Hento was the one a girl came into the I Emin mean, Chronicle office about two weeks after Madrid had been in Manchester, saying that Hento had promised to marry her. And, yes, she came in the office and, 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 and Jack Smith listened to this tale. And how do I get hold of him? And, and how do and Jack Smith gave her a fiver and out of petty cash and put his arm around her and took her to the lift and no more was heard of it. And did you print the story? Certainly not. No. Wow. <laughs> See, that now would be all over yes. social media. Yes. Oh, yes.
0: And then it would be followed up in Madrid,
1: mm.
0: and then it would be mistranslated back into English, yes. yes. and then the Spanish press would get it and say, reliable sources according yes. to the Daily yes. Star. <laughs> yes, yes. I know.
1: Oh, the truth would just be Fantastic, lost in the world. know.
0: Are you optimistic for the future of Manchester United, finally? And are you going to carry on writing columns for United We Stand? Absol- we've, had, we've had
1: a very good feedback too. Now, Writing columns for United We Stand? Well, what goes around comes around, doesn't it? You start off as a sort of football journalist and you end up as a football journalist. Did you read the fanzine? Yes, yes, so it's wonderful. Wow. It's a it's, it's, it's language it's,
0: not a bit coarse in places at times,
1: yes, but that's wonderful. It, it, it combines sort of bits of coarse language and bits of people thinking very seriously and, yeah. bits, of, and bits of sort of oh, fantastic love, yeah, and it's fantastic full of love. sort of full of love, redemption, people whose lives have been given some meaning by this, which is of map that's what Matt would. Matt would say that was justification. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the privilege.